and now coming to you live from the Cood Street self-isolation zone where Gary's in his bunker in Chicago and I'm hidden away in Perth. It's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the self-isolated, shut-down Cood Street Podcast! And we're back. We've been doing our little uh, 10 Minutes With podcast, which people should all go listen to, where we're talking to many friends of ours. But we haven't chatted with each other in a couple of weeks now, so let's no. Let's and get if, our, if you go back, back it's, it's actually probably six weeks or eight weeks since we've spoken one on one on the podcast and not had a guest because we spoke with Nora Jemison and Ken Lowe on the two preceding True. episodes, and so I guess this is the first time to talk about a little about what the heck's happening in the world and how it's affecting the science fiction world and anything related. I mean, these are strange and difficult times. Well, there's science fictional times, and there's a sense, there's an odd sense that I get from uh, from, from from Twitter and, and 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 Facebook and that sort of thing, of validation that science fiction people feel every once in a while when this happens. There was, uh, since I'm really old, I can talk about what it felt like in 1969 to watch the moon landing, and to watch Walter Cronkite interviewing Arthur C. Clarke, and I think Heinlein as well. Uh, and for about five or six years after that, uh, the science fiction world felt like, ha, see, we saw it. We, 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 we told you. We told you so. And, yeah. um, and, and, and then the moon landing sort of went away and we stopped landing on the moon and, and the rest of the world said, yeah, you told us so, but so what? Now, now we've got all the apocalyptic narratives sort of coming true, but, but they're not coming true in the way that anybody thought. They're, nobody thought we'd be sitting in a room being bored to death. Um, well, and- that's because people looked for the more dramatic story, and right now coronavirus is manifesting as a bit of a first-world disease at the moment. That That is changing. And in the first world, we have the luxury and the privilege of treating it that way. You know, the, we, we can self-isolate to some degree. We can shut down or slow down our economies. We can try and control it. The sweeping stories that you read in the history of science fiction tend to focus mm-hmm. on the kind of thing that's more likely to happen in Africa and India and other places when, well, if, and hopefully it won't, but when the, the virus gets out there in, 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 you know, in a widespread way. I think that's true. And I think that the tendency that everybody has uh, to go back to the apocalyptic plague narratives um, is understandable, but not entirely um, not entirely a well-placed intention. There, there was a, a, a good article by one of my favorite New Yorker writers is Jill Lepore, uh, who, among other things, wrote that wonderful biography of Marsden, the guy who wrote, uh, who created Wonder Woman. And her article uh, talked about uh, the classic plague narratives going all the way back to Mary Shelley's The Last Man, which is not – if you haven't read The Last Man, it's you're, you're two-thirds of the way through it before the plague even really – the last man is is not the last man at all. He's um, and so it's 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 a it's it's not a Frankenstein. It's not a tight novel like that. She talks about that. She talks about um, uh, the Mask of the Red Death, um, which is maybe a little bit closer to home. She talks about Jack London, the Scarlet Plague, um, uh, Albert Camus, the Plague, and a little bit at, uh, an odd an odd choice, but an interesting one novel by Jose Saramago called Blindness, in which the plague is blindness, uh, which interestingly enough was also more or less the plague in way back in the day of the Triffids. But 
when you mention this is now a first world thing that started in the third world, that suggests to me another set of science fiction and narratives over over history, uh, which are very different, but also have some relevance to this. One is uh, the idea of the third world incursions on the first world, which goes back to yellow peril stories. And in my country, at least, our president initially tried to frame this whole thing as a kind of yellow peril. And still he is. He kept calling it the China virus. Yeah, and I, I, actually, I have to sort of split hairs. I didn't say it started in the third world and came to the first world. I'm just saying the first world is differently prepared and the third world is well, yeah. much less prepared. And I would not want to characterize it in that way. No, at all. And I would I would either accept that politicians have done that. Certainly, yes. Um, the, the more right-wing the politician, the more objectionable way they're phrasing this tragedy. Though, you know, I mean, think they are being forced as well to confront it. I mean, these are very, very strange times. I mean, I was listening to a discussion and a prominent Australian journalist was saying that they mm -hmm. were out in a local park with their family and they were exercising because here at mm -hmm. least you're allowed to go out for exercise purposes. And, you know, she'd gone down with her children, one of whom is a teenage, you know, a teenager who hadn't wanted to go and stomped down with them and brought mm -hmm. her book and her iPod or whatever it was and her headphones and sat down under a tree so that she could read her book and listen to music while the family exercised. And the police came over and cautioned her because the park is not available for that purpose. It's only available for exercise. Oh, really? That's odd. I mean, I, 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 we've had this happening in Chicago where the, the beaches are closed and, and cops have been breaking up, pick up basketball games and this sort of thing. But somebody sitting alone under a tree... That strikes me as a little bit odd. And I guess that's part of what I'm talking about, the response to this, is that I, I, I don't think we need to if, – if we try to identify the kind of ideological responses to this crisis, I don't, think the, I don't think the answer is in plague narratives. What I see is something that looks a lot like alien invasion stories. And I'll give you an example of what I've seen. When I go up to the roof deck on my building and I look outside and I see very few people, you know, a few single people walking dogs and people literally crossing the street to avoid being close to each other. What it reminds me of more than anything else is a scene from the original 1956 Don Siegel movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where Kevin McCarthy is looking out of his office in this small California town. It says, look at those people. They look perfectly ordinary. It looks like an ordinary day, but you don't know which ones of them are real. <laughs> and this, by the way, is also a movie, which a piece of Hollywood trivia that everybody in the science fiction field knows now, which the studio insisted that the director tack on a happy ending. But the actual ending of the movie was Kevin McCarthy shouting at the audience, you're next. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you look at that, you look at the puppet masters, the Heinlein's of puppet masters, you look at the idea that you don't know who out there is a danger and who isn't a danger. That's the way we treat alien invasions. That's not the way we treat diseases. No. And in addition to that, our solution to it, or at least the solution that seems to be getting all the press in the United States now, is that we need to have more machines to fight it. Um, I mean, ventilators are not what... I, I don't recall ever seeing a science fiction uh, scenario of any kind of future disaster uh, where the issue is ventilators. Uh, <laughs> but it's a science fictional solution to a problem. Well, except there's not a solution. It's, it's merely a, a treatment as you wait for your solution. Oh, yeah, absolutely, as, as, as you wait for solutions. 
Um, I made the mistake. I made the mistake, as many people did. I'm probably only the millionth person to have rewatched Outbreak and Contagion. And um, Outbreak is is a movie with Dustin Hoffman. It's okay. It's 25 years old. It's 1980, 35 years old, maybe 1995. And it's a dumb movie. It's a really dumb movie. It's a Wolfgang Peterson adventure story. And it's got lines in it like Dustin Hoffman saying, wow, this is a new virus. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing to find a new virus. They've they've identified 6,800 new viruses in the last 20 years. It's not a lifetime thing at all. It happens all the time. And, And then there are a bunch of explosions and there are helicopter chases. The movie Contagion which is a Steven Soderbergh movie, is terrified because it's right on the money. I thought the phrase social distancing was something new, and here is Lawrence Fishburne talking about social distancing 10 years ago in this movie. Um, so it's, it's possible for, for, for movies to get it right, but what they get right is the epidemiology of it, yeah. and that never is a major part of the, of the science fiction narratives. Yeah, I guess it's not. Just, it's, why do you th- I mean like, I have to say I've not been attracted to tales of pandemics at all. My mind has been as far away from that as humanly possible. You know, I've been reading different things, I've been encountering different people, doing different things. I I can't imagine wanting to. I can't I mean my mind has been on the the non-epidemiological issues that we're dealing with, how it's impacting our friends, our colleagues, the community uh-huh. at large. Uh, given the the likely path of the virus, as we're told, it's likely to you know, progress. Uh, what's going to happen on the other side? Because this really is an unprecedented, in many ways, type of event. Well, I think it is, and I, I don't think anybody has experienced anything like this. And I was trying to think back to when you think of major issues of terrorism, uh, and, and and even when you think back to world wars. Um, it's hard to think of an event where essentially everybody on earth is experiencing the same thing, experiencing the same level of anxiety. I mean, even I, I don't know this for, for certain, but I'm, I'm guessing that there were probably people in Patagonia who weren't that directly affected by World War One. Uh, everybody on earth is affected by the same thing here. And to that extent, it brings to mind another kind of science fiction narrative, which is the threat of annihilation the, uh, the, the, the 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 planet which is about to collide into us hang on does it really uh, which, because which there's no threat of annihilation United- at all gary there's no of threat of annihilation at all no let's be let's be sane here we've got a situation where we're holding out for a virus solution which is going to come in 12 or 18 months depending on how it mm-hmm. progresses and during that time there is going to be a catastrophic human price to pay and it will be in the, probably the hundreds of thousands of people of the seven and a half billion on the planet. And that will be genuinely tragic. The kind of things that we're going to confront in our lives, there will be people that we know who are very sick or mm. who die. And that is. That's true. That's just tragic. astonishingly appalling and tragic and awful. But the, what it's actually going to be is it's going to be a restructuring of the world after a kind of pause we've never had because we've had pandemics before. Pandemics are a known thing. Even pandemics on this scale are a known thing. They're not a recent thing, so we don't have they're first-hand memory of them. But they're but they are not that. I mean, they go back to, go back to nineteen nineteen and the Spanish plague, right? But absolutely, what's unprecedented in our our memory 
is the shutdown of an economy like this. That is unprecedented. Yep. And we have no idea what's going to happen on the other side of it and the kind of changes. I mean, you and I are part of the traveling class, Gary. We go to conventions. Mm -hmm. We go to events. Will you in 12 months? Will you be able to? Will your airline survive? Will your travel agent survive? When you go out the front door, will the company that provided your coffee survive? Will you find that because you've been self-isolating, that there are things that you've picked up doing in a self-isolation style that you're going to keep doing in a self-isolation style? How are you going to going? How are how is publishing, which directly impacts you and me, and mm. most of the people who listen to this podcast in one way or another, either as writers or artists or publishers or editors or readers, right? How is that going to recover? Because as Beth Meacham put very well on Facebook, I've got a situation where China isn't shipping paper from its pulp at paper mills. The stocks of paper are running out at printeries in the states. Printeries aren't functioning, brinders aren't functioning, transport to do it, print, get that stuff around isn't functioning, even if it is, when it gets printed and bound, it's sitting in warehouses, stuff to get out of there isn't functioning. And then over the past two weeks, hundreds of Barnes and Nobles and hundreds of other bookstores have closed, possibly many of them never to reopen. Tragically, terribly, and this is why it's critical to support your no, the Barnes, local bookstore. Yeah, the, Barnes and Noble, the Barnes and Noble down the street for me is not going, of course it was actually going to be um, relocated. Now it's not going to reopen at all. Uh, it's, it's, it's essentially gone and it's, it's, it's already gone. In other words, this is not something to anticipate. It's closed because of the, uh, of the shutdown and it's not coming back. So I think you're absolutely right. We will come out of this into a changed world. Uh, my, the reason I was interested in looking at plague narratives or reading uh, the, the joke, article is because of the because of my role as a science fiction critic and historian in other words how have we looked at this sort of thing have we it's 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 not how close have we come but what things are emerging from this that may have been anticipated in a different way than what we expected the economy uh falling apart it's hard to uh Imagine that, but it's been imagined in science fiction. Not always, not always the real subtle of a plague. If you go to the self-isolation thing, I go back to one of what I still think is one of the most spookily prescient science fiction stories ever written, going back to 1909, I think, with the Forster's The Machine Stops, where everybody is in their cubicle, uh, dependent on uh, the world machine to keep them going, never having human contact at all, uh, and and forced into leaving, you know, their underground war and when the machine begins to break down. So the idea of people self-isolating, uh, of, of people sort of creating uh, little cliques of, uh, of social social gatherings that consist of nothing but your immediate family, all that's been there. Uh, but I, that's my point is that's not what we're looking at when we're looking at how uh, the science fiction and fantasy world have, have dealt I, I, th I think what you see now in, in elements of official responses, at least, partly the alien invasion narrative, partly uh, the mechanical solution narrative, partly the self-isolation uh, breakdown of society narrative. Um, and and I, I think that every element of this is somewhere in the history of imaginative literature, but it's not all together in any one place. In other words, it's, there's nothing that has quite described the world the way it is. And people are absolutely right, and Stephen King is absolutely right, to point out that, no, this is not the stand. This is not the Scarlet Plague. 
I do think of the Mask of the Red Death, when, which is a story essentially about the elite, about the uh, the royalty, thinking that they can uh, protect themselves from the plague, which is uh, destroying the peasantry and finding out that they can't. And that was very deliberately uh, Poe's intent with that story, apparently. Um, so things like that. But my, my point is that what we're seeing is, is an amalgam, and this is not meaning to trivialize it at all, we're seeing an amalgam of a lot of nightmares from the past 200 years of literature, but it's taking bits and pieces from a lot of different traditions. And it's it's absolutely right. I don't, I don't think you can point to a work that will portray a world that will look anything like the world we'll come out of this with. Do you think I don't the, think any of us have any idea. Do you think it's the kind of circumstance that we're living through? You always hear writers say that when they are when they go live abroad, say if you if you're from New York and you go and live in London, it's mm-hmm. only when you come back from London that you start to write about London because you have perspective. Do you think mm-hmm. that this event that we're going through will ultimately shape the science fiction we see? I mean, we've talked a, a lot on the podcast over the last two years or three years about the rise of the uh, of climate change as mm-hmm. a, a default background now for science fiction because it's such a default welded in part of our future. Do you see this also similarly being welded into the, the background of the science fiction futures that people choose to tell, at least, you know, sort of in a, in that kind of near future or near to mid future tile type of science fiction? Not necessarily. I mean, I, I think to the extent that, uh, you didn't get a lot of plague narratives after the 1918 epidemic. You, uh, you, you did get a lot of kind of disillusionment, a lot of the notion that society is fragile, but it's hard to separate the 1918 pandemic from the First World War. Uh, so essentially, you had a world remade after that decade. I mean, that decade, there are decades that remake the world completely, and certainly the 1910 to 1920 decade was one. Uh, the 1930 to 1945 was another, probably. Um, so we may, be, we may be in a decade like that. We may be in a decade in which... Um, the uh, world economy is realigned. I would like to think that one of the one of the science fiction narratives from the past that we uh, could learn from is the um, the universal threat narrative, the idea that when worlds collide narrative, if the entire world is under threat, does that encourage us to cooperate more to understand that maybe our regional wars don't mean as much? And what I'm seeing, it's interesting in, in the news I'm getting here. There are still wars going on, but you don't hear about them. And yeah. nobody seems very enthusiastic about them. Yeah. I guess what in, would encourage me, at least from a science fictional perspective, is that the anthropoc- anthropocenic narratives that I read mm-hmm. do have exactly that. The solution to what we're doing is to come together. When I was talking exactly. to James Bradley for 10 Minutes With, mm-hmm. uh, we talked about various things. And I talked about a book that I was looking at about the... 1964 Anchorage earthquake. And the book's fascinating, but the mm-hmm. instance is fascinating for a couple of reasons. It was this terrible pod, the, the terrible event that, that took place, I think, in, at, at Easter in 1964. It was a 9.2 on the Richter scale earthquake that lasted for four and a half right. minutes and shook the, the city of Anchorage to, to its roots, destroyed it largely at the time. Destroyed it, yeah. it very heavily. Now, what's interesting is that 
on the second day of of the recovery, the U.S. government dispatched sociologists to that area, Mm -hmm. right? And you might say that's a very strange thing to do. I mean, obviously, there's other rescue stuff, but they they dispatched sociologists as part of their Cold War nuclear war research. They're researching the idea that after a disaster, everything would fall apart, people would turn on each other, and would would basically become a rabid Mad Maxian kind of horde. Yeah. But what they found instead was everybody came together, and everybody helped helped resolve problems. And one of the things that happened was there was an amateur group of uh, mountaineers who would train every week near the, near Anchorage mm-hmm. in doing avalanche recoveries. They ended up leading the city's reco- uh, recovery through all of the buildings that had collapsed, rescuing people. Other people did similar things. And what they what was interesting, the sociologists went and asked these questions, and what they found is they'd say, well, why are you doing this? And people would look kind of puzzled, as, as though they didn't really understand the question. And they'd be like, well, it's yeah. there to be done. You've got to do it. So there's a strong body of research that shows that peoples and communities come together to solve these situations. It's difficult and stressful, actually, that the way we come together right now is by staying apart, right? That's a weird, stressful thing because we can't just go and dig something out, cover it over. But potentially, um, this is a time to come together. And it was interesting. I was listening to John Rhys Davies yesterday talk about his experience. And he cited Mm -hmm. the critical importance of the United States after the Second World War in the recovery of the world economy through the Marshall Plan, right? And mm-hmm. although I have no confidence in your current leadership, I will say, <laughs> it will it will be critical for countries to have actually outward-looking ways of resolving these problems. I mean, unfortunately, one of the strange things is you have to be outward-looking in your solutions, but I also see a strong inward-looking trend as well. And I haven't seen this in science fiction, but right now, for example, okay, one of the first things I heard before it seemed like this was going to be the sweeping tragedy that it is was that America had realized that with China shut down and not manufacturing, most of its medications were coming from there. And so you were dependent here Mm -hmm. in Australia. There are similar things. I think you're going to see a, a strong trend away from globalization of economies. Now you're going to see people wanting to localize production capability so that you're secure because here's one of the things that sits in, in, in mind, at least emotionally. I mean, it's April now. Aren't you waiting for the next thing after the pandemic to go wrong? We've had fires. We've had floods. We've got the pandemic. And it's mm-hmm. still only the very beginning of April. It's not even Easter, Gary. And it's not even fire season yet in California. And everyone, I, the people and my friends in California are thinking, okay, the pandemic may die down. And then we're going to have to keep those masks on to keep the soot out of our mouths. Uh, so you're absolutely right. And I think, to, again, to go back to look at uh, how this uh, is reflected in the history of fantastic literature. I think, I think there's always been this, this dual tradition, uh, one which deals with, we deal with threats by isolating ourselves and hunkering down. There's, there's a whole, there's a long tradition of, um, science fiction novels, most of them not very good. Going back, let me think, going back to Edgar Rice Burroughs, there's an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel called Beyond 30 in which the United States isolates itself from the rest of the world and simply, and nobody knows what's happened in the United States for a century or something. Uh, there were novels in the 50s which uh, atomic bubbles preserved the, so there's that, 
And, and the other tradition is, is, is the anti-isolationist tradition, which basically says that there are things the world can do to us that no nation can protect itself from. And this is one of those. There's a very strange way in which this pandemic is a version of global warming. It's something which is happening to everybody at once, and you can't deal with it as an individual nation. You can try, but it's not going to work in the long There's a narrative and a way of thinking that I hope dies during this particular pandemic. It won't, but I, I would like it to. Our friend Paolo Bacigalupi wrote a terrific book called The Water Knife about two years ago. And it was all about basically arcologies. Now, arcologies are, are you know, are, were, seemed like a fun idea when uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell wrote about them. But, but when you look at them in Paolo Bacigalupi's Water Knife, they are the wealthy and the privileged isolating themselves off from the rest of the world while the rest of the world burns. And they're able to somehow continue because they're going to be able to create an isolated enough bubble that they'll be fine. Hopefully, one thing that will come out culturally in this is that we will realize that that's just not possible. It's not realistic in any significant way. And even if it were realistic, it's horrific and not desirable. You know, we need to be in this together to resolve it. And we also need to sort of keep leaking out of just how science fiction treats things. We need to be choosing how we want to live after this is over. Because we're going to hit a point, whether it's August or December or April of next year, whenever it is, when this is under control, right? Um, and at that point, it's like, how do you choose to live and be alive then? Because there are all these things that are broken, these connections that have broken on a day-to-day basis, locally, nationally, internationally, that have to be reconnected. Some of them will not come back to life naturally. So what do you want what do you value? You know, so so it's got to be like, how do you deal with your local community? How do you deal with a broader community? Have you supported these businesses that you value and you want to be there, and so on and so forth? So this is broader outlooking thing. Now I haven't seen a lot of that in fiction, in science fiction, but I would hope to begin to see more of it, and not in Pollyanna-ish kind of hope narratives, but just as a pragmatic, practical part of the solution to the problem we're facing. Yeah. You know, no, I think that's true, and I, I think that's one of the reasons that there is value in um, – and what we've, we've, just, we've talked about Kim Stanley Robinson as essentially a utopian writer because he, his fiction is about trying to find solutions. It's not, it's not Pollyanna-ish at all. He's very realistic about New York being uh, drowned. Uh, Cory Doctorow, I was talking a little bit um, about him on one of the 10-minute uh, podcasts with, with, with Nisi Shaw. Uh, and, and she made an interesting point that there is there is a writer who is in some ways a radical utopianist. He he believes in protest. He he's very very good at pointing out what is oppressive about the system. But he's also very good at pointing out how to resist that and how to overcome it uh, using the technology uh, it's, itself um, to defend yourself. So the, so I think that what we may come out of this with I don't think we're going to see a new plague of uh, of, of, of plague science fiction. I, I, I think people pretty much have had that. I think, I think you're right. Most people at this point don't want to read more uh, dystopian narratives. And I'm, frankly, I'm tired of dystopian narratives. I would like to see some science fiction that uh, offers, if not solutions, at least reasonable critiques of the way things are. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that the economy, the, the structure of the world that comes out of this will be something that we haven't imagined and probably something that you... 
it would be very interesting to see if anybody um, in the last 20 years of, of science fiction has come up with anything like the world as it probably will be in six months. And look, it would be very disappointing if we simply went back to exactly the way it was before. You know? I don't think that'll happen. I mean, we're we're seeing some interesting. Um, it's 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 early yet, but it's it, yeah. we're we're seeing we're seeing Trump post Trump science fiction. We're seeing some post Brexit science fiction. Uh, you could make an argument that uh, Lavi Tedar's Arthurian novel, in a weird way, is a post Brexit novel, and it has some very good uh, critiques of current politics set in the sixth century. Granted, but nevertheless. Um, it's it, it's a response to that. It takes a few years for people to start responding to things, and I I, I think that the response that uh, people will have uh, to whatever is happening now isn't going to be isn't going to be a repeat of, of of plague stories. I don't think we need any more of those. I don't think anybody wants those. It's going to be how can you know you have a chance here to restructure the world economy in a way that you didn't ever expect to have. How will you do it? Yeah. What will you do? So let me ask you this to segue away from plague narratives, because on one mm -hmm. hand, I'm sure I mean it's interesting and we, it's worth talking about. On the other hand, I am sure that our listeners are hearing a lot about it, and we've yeah. just had talked about it for half an hour. So to, to, to segue out of it into a different kind of thing, let me ask you this question. Let me turn it around. Hey, okay. Gary, what have you been reading lately? I'm glad you asked that. Because I have extremely mixed emotional responses to what I started reading this morning. I'm reading the last novel by Gene Wolfe, Interlibrary Loan. It's the sequel to uh, A Borrowed Man, yeah. which was a very elegiac novel in many ways uh, to begin with. And the, the last several novels he's, he's written have been um, – I don't want to say farewell narratives, but they've certainly been novels written from the point of view of somebody who knew he was writing his last works. He hasn't gotten any major award nominations. There are always things in a Gene Wolfe novel that you know you're not getting and you have to go back and look at it again. But this one actually is pretty suspenseful. It's a murder mystery. Like The Borrowed Man, it's about a character who is in fact a reclone of a mystery writer who is lives in a library and, and it's a it's a he'd say semi-human being uh, who can be checked out and he gets checked out and he's uh, he, he gets involved in uh, the disappearance of the client's husband and so forth. It, 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 it's, it's actually pretty suspenseful. It's nice. It's short. It's accessible. The last three or four novels that, uh, that Gene wrote were all pretty accessible uh, and um, they were – they're, they're, this is not a high point of his, his career and that sort of thing. But there is uh, a sense that nobody else is like that. Um, I was looking up um, just out of curiosity because I, I, I know that none of his last – none of the novels he wrote during the last 10 years of his life uh, received any award nomination. So I got curious. Gene Wolfe never received a Hugo Award at all. Yeah. I'm not too surprised, but he deserved one. Yeah, he. I mean, he he got all the grandmaster awards there are. Of course, he got the, basically all the jury awards, got, and all the jury awards. Uh, he got world fantasy awards. I think he got a couple of nebulas. Um, one of his last uh, major stories that did get nominated was Memorari, which is one of the great novellas in the history of science fiction. And yeah, it's easy to go back and say, how could you not have given that thing an award? 
but he never was writing for that audience anyway. Um, well, I okay. don't. I will always come back to Kevin Stanley's analogy for the Hugo Awards, which is really the set of awards you're talking about that didn't mm-hmm. acknowledge Gene Wolfe that way. And that is, it's a pot, it's voting for the best salad at a potluck dinner or something. Well, know? yeah. And true. I don't say that to put down the things that have won or to anything. It's just, it's just not the, uh, the kind of award that was ever going to particularly recognize Gene Wolfe in a broad way. He deserved it. But, you know, it's just, mm. it's just how it is, you know, and it's interesting well, to I mean, talk it, about it, it because, of course, we're it, on the cusp of that. But you, you were saying, right. and, actually, let me ask uh, you a question. This mm-hmm. book that you're reading, Interlibrary Loan, if our listeners were going to go and read it when it comes out in like June or July, uh, do they uh-huh. need to have read A Borrowed Man first? No, I think it will help a little bit because the basic situation that's set up in A Borrowed Man is only cursorily uh repeated in this one but it's a it's a different narrative it's not a sequel it's not a narrative sequel to what happens in okay. that novel at all um but it's uh as i say it's there's a sense that um you don't know we know that he turned it in uh weeks before he died we know that mostly from neil gaiman having talked to him and he told neil he'd turned it in and i, I he's dealing with the same editors of tour that he was dealing with ever since um david hartwell died uh, so it's it's a complete novel. It's not something that's cobbled together from his manuscripts. It's his, and it is almost certainly his last novel because I knew Gene well enough to know that he wasn't the kind of person that kept trunk stories yeah. uh, away from us. So so this this is this is the end of a spectacular career. Um, it's the other thing I read recently. Yep. It, it, it's it's very bittersweet, and it's but it's very readable, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, the thing that people don't understand about Gene Wolfe, because you get intimidated yeah. by people like me or people like Neil Gaiman saying you have to read very carefully. You have to read the first <laughs> sentence of this novel. You have to understand that what happens on page 170 of Peace refers back to what's happened on page 2. All that is true, but there's also uh, a skill that he had for writing – um, novels which include uh, novels such as A Borrowed Man or this one or a very odd novel he wrote called Pandora by Holly Hollander in which he in which he masters the uh, the form of in that case kind of a young adult kind of a Nancy Drew mystery even there's still a Gene Wolfe novel underneath it but there's a very entertaining kind of uh, entertainment on the surface so I would I would say for both a borrowed man and this they're both mysteries uh, they both have plots they both have uh, sat I don't know the solution of this one I haven't finished it yet um, so so I would I would recommend that people go back and look at a borrowed man but I I think this is going in an interesting direction as well um, I'm fascinating I'm fascinated by people who like to take genre materials and and run with them in a direction that you didn't think they were going to go. Um, the other thing I've read this week is a novella, which I believe you edited. Zen shows the – I keep wanting to say the motion of it's, – it's the pure – okay, wait a minute. The order of the pure moon reflected in water. Which, which is one of those – it's a lovely poetic title, and you sort of expect it to be a kind of, I don't know uh, – sensitive nature poem in prose and it's about a nun and a bunch of bandits it's a smutty bar uh, story 
It's a bar story. It absolutely is. It's it, it's 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 a it's kind of a, it's not quite a club tale, but uh, it's, it's a lot tougher than I expected. I mean, as it says on the back cover, a bandit walks into a coffee house and it all goes downhill from there. Pretty much, and it's great. It's just great. And yet, it doesn't violate the terms of Wuxia that she's. I assume that's how you pronounce that. I, I don't know. Um, that, she, that, that that she's writing, and and and, and she really does follow the uh, principles of her order. And uh, it's so, so. So it's in, in other words, I, th- I I thought okay, I should read this. I like Zin Cho's fiction. I like the fact that she wrote this. Uh, uh, sort of Regency fantasy um, uh, series, and I liked her collection of short stories, but I didn't expect this. And the other, the other unexpected book, which really surprised me and pleased me, um, was Lobby Tidars by Forrest Halone, because the last thing I thought I wanted to read, and I felt this way for at least twenty years, so it's not anything recent. For at least 20 years, I've thought, I don't want to read anything ever again about King Arthur and the round table. <laughs> and that's a, it's like John Steinbeck did one. I mean, for heaven's sake, everybody has to do King Arthur. It's like, okay, everybody has to – speaking today after Bill Withers is – everybody has to play their version of Lean on Me. But Lavi did something completely unexpected with it, and it's hilarious and – um, it's basically Samuel Jackson starring in the Knights of the Round Table. Yeah. It really is. It's sort of, you know, it, I mean, I've, I've started reading it and I'm sort of dipping in and out because I'm having, I'm having to read other things myself, but it's a pretty visceral retake. I mean, I read an interview with Levy talking about the book yeah. and he was saying that he had no desire to read or write anything Arthurian. And then he got caught up in having to prep for a university course or something. And he went uh-huh. back and he read and he suddenly realized that all of the takes on Arthur were wrong because they said it all as, the, uh, uh, as this enormous act of chivalry and all everything. When actually mm. the whole t- matter of Britain, the whole t- tale of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is a tale of thuggery. So yeah. he chose to rewrite it as a tale of thuggery, as a a mob tale. And this is the first of a series, by the way, Gary. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, he's... I think the other thing, that, and, and, and I, I can completely understand that. The other point he makes uh, in an afterwards where he's clearly done his homework, I mean, he's read Geoffrey of Monmouth, he's read Chrétien de Troyes, is that there isn't any right version of the Arthurian legend. Everything was just made up from scratch by each generation of writers going back to the 12th century. In other words, none of this has any significant historical, uh, the, the, you know, the, the fact that French and German writers added this to it and Mallory added that to it. <clears throat> the thing he's adding to it, apart from the profanity and so forth and so on, is that Lavi is an inescapable science fiction fan. He is going <laughs> to throw out science fiction stuff. When he has a line in this novel, uh, I think it's referring to Lancelot having seen attack ship attack ships on fire off the coast of Smyrna. It's it's Lobby geeking <laughs> out on that line. And by the end of it, and you haven't gotten to this point yet, by the end of it you're reading Roadside Picnic. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to continuing with it. So yes. tell me, if that if you've been reading, you know, Zencho and Levi Tidhar, 
what would you recommend other people read right now? What do you think would be something to turn to? Given that, you, as we were saying before the podcast, you haven't done any unassigned reading in two decades. No, I haven't. And that's so we're asking the same question we're asking people on the 10 minute podcast. Um, I, I, I have no rational reason for having picked up uh, three or four books by Jorge Luis Borges. Mm-hmm. And reading some of his short stories, The Garden of Forking Paths, some of his – there's a wonderful book of his called The Book of Imaginary Beings, mm-hmm. uh, which I was reading aloud to my partner, uh, Dale, and and finding out that some of these beings that that Borges had discovered in plenty or in medieval texts are now showing up in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, so, 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 so there's a kind of connection there. Um, there was a – very obscure book. I'll be interested to see if anybody who among our listeners has ever heard of this writer either, even. There was a writer who died in 1949 named Will Cuppy, who had written uh, a series of humorous articles for The New Yorker and collected them in books. One was called How to Tell Your Friends from the Apes. <laughs> and his last book was called The Decline and Fall of Practically Everybody. And it's just a reasonably accurate but smart, smart alecky retelling of of, of world history. And I've been reading some of that. I, I, I don't know why. I, I'm reading things that are about as far removed from my current experience as I can get. Maybe that's it. And you've been reading, you, you, you obviously have been reading Irish murder mysteries. I read um, six of them, Gary. I read six in a yes. row, and I'm impatiently waiting for the seventh one that's coming out in September. It's, it's eating me up that there's this book, uh, The Detective <laughs> Up Late which was apparently written and completed in 2018 and was due to come out in mid-2019 and was rescheduled for various publishing reasons. And it's like, it's there and I don't know how to get a copy. It's like, normally I have science fiction people I can go like, hey, what can you do for me? So yes. We should explain, and, this is, this is Adrian McKinty. Adrian McKinty wrote the series of six books starring, uh-huh. uh, featuring the, a detective, Sean Duffy, that is set in Carrick in Northern Ireland, about uh-huh. a five or ten minute walk from where I grew up. Uh, set during the Troubles, starting in uh, about 1981 and proceeding a year or two with each book up until by the end of book six, it's just the beginning of the 1990s. And they are funny and dark and strangely literal. I mean, the character is really compelling because he starts off as this alcoholic junkie who is completely committed to solving cases, even if they're not formally solved. And has an esoteric taste in music that he's obsessed with, a broad knowledge of literature, all of which gets thrown into the, into them. And he does stuff that's actually laugh out loud funny in them. So they're incredibly compelling. And I, it starts with, off with a book called The Cold, Cold Ground. And I give them the highest recommendation. I've been reading those. I've also been reading for work, obviously. So I've been reading Kundo Wakes Up, which is a novella by Saad Hossein, which will come out from Tor.com next year. And it's another one of his karma stories. And I love it a great deal. Uh, I've also been reading a few, one thing that I can't talk about because it hasn't been announced yet. And I just yesterday received a spindle splintered, which is a novella that's going to, by Alex Harrow that's going to come out next year that I'm very, very, very excited about. Um, and I've started actually buying books to read that have been recommended on our podcasts, Gary. So I just p- picked up Tuesday, Tuesday Mooney Wore Black by Kate Rakula, or Rachula, Rakula, uh, which was recommended on one of the podcast episodes and which looks fascinating. 
uh, and have done gone out and you know been kind of reading a little bit of Martha Wells and some other stuff. So I've been reading a lot, you know, um, and trying to stay stay a little sane, I guess. I, I think this is the thing I'm I'm picking up when we do to put another plug in for our ten minutes with podcast. I'm a little surprised at finding out what some of our friends are reading, and it's not always current stuff. It's not always new stuff. Uh, uh, our our good friend Andy Duncan, one of the one of the leading short story writers in America. Let's let's be honest about that. Is reading Lenny Bruce's autobiography. You should listen to that podcast, folks. Well, you should. I'm puzzled, actually, that, as I was saying to you, uh, I'm a little puzzled that you're surprised because obviously for our writer friends, and we've been largely talking to our writer friends, uh-huh. that's how they charge their batteries, you know? I guess so. Um, there, uh, another friend who we may talk to at, 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 at some point, Brett Cox, turns out to have the best collection of 1950s and 1960s UFO books anywhere <laughs> because he's been collecting them since he was a kid. And there's a there's a whole subculture of that. Actually, Andy has already written a short story about uh, 50s UFO culture. But apparently Brett has been collecting these things. And if for people out there, if you've never read the works of George Adamski or Frank Scully or, or, or some of these people, this was a kind of shadow science fiction that existed throughout the 50s. Um, and it made its way into fake documentary films, uh, and it was all about this is this is before the UF, UFO abduction thing, or at the beginning of it at least, the Betty and Barton Hill stuff. That kind of thing has always fascinated me because I've always thought, and I've actually had other conversations with Andy about this, but not with Brett, that there is a kind of need for science fiction to be satisfied by people who didn't read fiction at all. So it became reality. And I think the UFO cult was part of that. Uh, I think the Dianetics cult became part of that. I think there's always this kind of shadow science fiction out there in the culture, which fascinates us. I, I'm not sure what is out there now, but I'm sure there's something. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe, it, maybe, maybe it's goop culture. <laughs> I was going to say, Andy's story is what, Close Encounter, I think? Close Encounter, yeah. Which is in his most recent collection and on Tor.com. Well, no, but, but, as a matter of fact, Andy has also written about the uh, the experiments that Ryan did at Duke University. There's all the, In other words, and, and, and to some extent, uh, Alec Neville Lee talked about this in his book about Astounding. There's always been this science fictional uh, subtext in, in in the odd corners of the mainstream culture. That sometimes connected with science fiction and didn't. UFO stuff is one. ESP stuff is another one. Um, uh, Atlantis, the Shaver mysteries and that sort of thing. Um, one of the things I learned in talking, I've got to talk to Brett. We'll talk to Brett on one of these 10 minute things. One of the things I learned in talking to Andy is that Brett Cox got a letter back from Richard Shaver, who was wow. the guy who came up with the bizarre Atlantis mysteries back <laughs> in the late 40s. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and and it's one of the things that's worth keeping an eye out for, folks, is what pseudo science fiction or what crypto science fiction sort of cults or beliefs or uh, traditions are out there right now. Yeah. Or are growing. Or are growing. Yeah. Or, 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 or uh, that that science fiction people pay little attention to. And, you know, I think if I were sitting around reading and I wasn't reading for work and I wasn't do- going to my day job still and all this sort of stuff, 
I think it'd be Terry Pratchett. I feel like it'd be a, a time to reread Terry Pratchett. There is an innate decency and humaneness that underlies all of his fiction that strikes me as immensely attractive right now. Apart from the fact that they're readable and immersive and laugh out loud funny, they're also, Mm -hmm. they're written from the kind of perspective I wish they'd build the world on. They're kind. They're, they're kind and humane. I think that's a very good example of, uh, of a writer that is still way too rare in the genre. But let me put it, uh, let me put another kind of, not 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 the anti Terry Pratchett at all because there's the same kind of humor there, but there's something to be said for the utter cynicism of a K.J. Parker. Sure, um, sure. Because again, I was talking, I was I was listening to your ten minute podcast with Jeff Ford, and he had mm-hmm. just read uh, Prospero's Demon, uh, yeah. and Parker's characters are just awful, <laughs> and they know they're awful, and and. And, and they're and, and they're narrating from the point of view of being a really awful person, and sometimes they feel kind of bad about being awful, but then they go on being awful. Um, and there's there's a kind of nihilism about that, which, in a weird way, is as reassuring as the kind of uh, warmth of Terry Pratchett. And, and when I say yeah. the warmth of Terry Pratchett, I keep in mind that death is not a very friendly character in those novels, and there's a major a major force in them. I feel like you're working to plug my books, Gary, because you're right. Prosper's Demons by K.J. Parker, which has a great cover on by Sam Weber, is out in the world right now and is Mm -hmm. fabulous. And I loved it. But you're right. It is in that sense, the kind of um, anti-Terry Pratchett. It's it's, it's the anti-matter to his matter, I guess. Though maybe, maybe, maybe maybe the purpose that it fights towards is not dissimilar in a way. I think I was going to say, I would argue that Terry Pratchett would love those KJ Parker stories. Potentially, yeah, because I think that by illuminating what he does the way he does, he expresses a desire for the opposite of it, if you like. You mm-hmm. know, by by hi- highlighting these sometimes terrible characters. So yes, um, it's it's one of actually, since we're going to plug books now that I worked on. You mentioned the Zen book, which is coming out in June. The other book that I, I've worked Zen on, Trump. which is out. Now, right now, this week, and if you want to support books, people, now is the time to fire up. This book here, which I'm holding up to Gary, is Anthropocene Rag by Alex Irvine. It's a short novel, really about novel, novel length, that was written, well, was started around the time he wrote A Scattering of Jades, which Gary will remember, uh-huh. uh, and was a very fine book. And it really is, I mean, I'll give you two of the blurbs, I mean, Brian Evanson says says it's a surreal reworking of American myth-making from Bunyan through Twain to Kerouac and beyond. Jeff Ford says it's Willy Wonka meets Harry Huck Finn. It's a rare distillation of nanotech apocalypse and mythic Americana into a heady psychedelic brew. And what it is, it's set in this world where, first of all, there's been a nanotech plague. Na- the nanotech mm-hmm. is, to some degree, aware and trying to work its, uh, uh, what it is. And it's turning to story to work that out. And the story it's picked up is classic American myths about America itself. And so it's sweeping across the United States, remaking it physically into the form of the stories that it knows. At the same time, there are these emergent AIs that aren't coming out and turning into Skynet to destroy us all. They're puzzled. And they're trying to work out what the world is. 
So there's this story that's told from the perspective of six people who have been given golden tickets to go to Monument City, a possibly mythical place where the great elements of American legend have been placed to keep them safe. And along the way, they are helped by Prospector Ed, who is supposed, who's been been sent by one of these AI to lead them, but is becoming aware himself or itself. And it's it's a fascinating book, and I can't recommend it strongly enough. And it's out like right I now, right look, now. And I will look forward to seeing it, even though I haven't yet. For <laughs> oh, yeah. reasons. But yeah, completely escaped me. Yeah. I mean, Alex is, Alex is, I mean, first of all, a scattering of jades, which was, was, was also a kind of interrogation of American. And as I recall, it had the draft riots of the 1840s together with the Aztec mythology and a whole bunch of stuff. It was a loony, but, but yeah. compelling novel. About 20 some years ago, he won a Crawford Award for it. And since then, he's had a, a, a series of interesting, interesting novels. He wrote a novel called Buyout, which was kind of an issue yeah. novel. It was almost novel about capital punishment yeah. uh, that was very provocative but wasn't the kind of thing you're describing now uh, and this strikes me as being uh, a writer who I always thought was potentially a major writer maybe reclaiming his place in, yeah. in, our, in our field yeah and, look, <laughs> and in a format where if you're willing to well it depends how you read uh, listeners if you read in print, it's affordable. If you read it uh, digitally, then it's very, very affordable. So you can go out and you can try it. I'm also going to sort of segue a little because we're getting towards the end of the podcast and I'm keen to yeah. advertise some things and to be pretty crass about it, Gary. All right, I think we need to support the things we love. So first of all, if you're in Australia or if you're outside of Australia and you want Australian books, I recommend Stefan's Books. That's with an mm -hmm. E, so S-T-E-F-E-N-S. And it's, he's online. You can order from him. I know he has stock of the, of the KJ Parker book right now since you brought it up unprompted. Aha. And okay. I'm sure he would love to hear from anybody who wants to get a hold of books. I would also eagerly recommend to anybody who appreciates values, has enjoyed this podcast, and has enjoyed the work that you and I have done from for Locus to consider going to locusmag.com and either buying an issue, subscribing or going to locusmag.com slash donate and contributing some money. These are the times when the things we love will disappear if we don't protect them. So do consider going out there. And something we've never really done, Gary, if you like the mm -hmm. podcast, if you like Cood Street, if you like 10 Minutes With, consider going to like the Apple Store and giving us a rating. We'd like people to listen to I this as we about. try and promote... Uh, the, the work we love, you know. So yeah, that's my rant. I think I think you're right, and I, I will underline in particular your uh, your point about Locus Magazine, which you and I have wor both worked for. If, if we add up how long we both worked there, I'm going to say <laughs> maybe a half century. It could be getting there. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly been there since 1997. So yes, that's for okay, 23 I've been years there since 1992. Uh, so yeah, we're, 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 we're past the half century mark easily. <laughs> so yes. And I, 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 a shout out to, to, to Liza Groen Trombi, to the staff, to everybody who's kept the magazine going a decade after everybody thought it wasn't going to continue. Yeah. But it's under more stress now than it's ever been. Potentially. And I mean, so I, I, I don't want to sort of freak people out, but if you, 
if you do, if you value it, or if you value other things, there are some great small press publishers and large publishers who would love your support, mm-hmm. whether they be Centipede Press or Subterranean or Tachyon or PS Publishing oh, or Newcon. Go to their websites, buy their books. Mm-hmm. If you value stuff, I mean, we've got specific friends, but I mean, I work with Tor.com and they're part of Tor who are part of Macmillan. And Macmillan are under mm. stress. I mean, there's been news reports about layoffs yeah. and jo- and pay cuts and all kind of things. If you can, and if you can't, I mean, it's really important as well. You say this, Gary. If you can't, and you're enjoying listening to this podcast for enjoyment, and you just can't do, do anything, you shouldn't feel stressed and pressured about it. We're really talking to people who can who can have a little bit of have room to move and do things. You know, if you can't, go to libraries, find ways to read things, and just look after yourselves. But you know, absolutely, if you can afford it consider it buy an issue of the magazine no i mean people aren't asking for charity they're asking for focus they're asking for attention you know uh i know that our friends kelly link and gavin grant started up a new bookshop very recently blue Mm -hmm. moon books maybe or something like that uh and and if you can i would suggest going there and to all of the bookshops that i haven't name checked because particularly here, in, let's say in Australia, I'm supporting Stephens, and where I elsewhere, if I was in San Francisco, it would be Borderlands. If I was in, in Borderlands in New York, I should put a shout out to Emma Emma Straub's yep. bookshop. Books are books are magic, and, yep. and again, like many of these shops, a few people are coming in to fill out mail orders because, by and large, they're yeah. closed for the public. And if I was in Seattle, I'd be recommending the University Bookstore. And if I were mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, it'd be somewhere else, New York, somewhere else. Support your local bookstores, support your local cafes, support the places you love, support Locus, support Asimov, support what you can. Subscribe, buy. You know, this is a good time to do that if you have a bit of a reserve. Uh, and fortunately, if you don't, there's an awful lot of free stuff. And certainly the Coot Street podcast, which has been coming to you free and gratis for nearly a decade now, Gary, will continue to do so. We hope we won't be boring you to death with all these podcasts, but we hope to do alleviate some of the the stress and we should be paying them for listening if you want to be honest yeah, about go, it but don't go there gary we let's not be honest that. about it no no okay well we should probably wind up that's an hour it's been great talking to you again as 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 always and let's try to uh between now and the next time you and i talk together on a full-fledged good street podcast there will be a number of a uh, considerable number of more 10 minute episodes with various friends who we will Call up and harass and, uh, and and make them record for us. Every single day, a little missive about the love of books and reading. Absolutely. And until we get together again, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. In a bunker. <laughs>